Welcome to the Yale Law Journal podcast. My name is Kaveri Sharma, the Volume 131 Yale Law Journal podcast editor. On each episode of this podcast, I am joined by one of my journal colleagues to dive deeper into a piece published in Volume 131 of the Yale Law Journal. We speak to the author of the piece to explore their arguments off the page and bring in stakeholders and practitioners to the conversation to discuss the real-world implications of the legal scholarship published by the journal. This podcast is intended to be for anyone and everyone with an interest in the law and legal scholarship. Whether you're a tenured law professor or a high school student, we hope this podcast exposes you to the ongoing debates in legal academia and that you will enjoy listening. On this episode, I'm joined by my journal colleague, Nathan Cummings, to discuss what happens when lawyers lie. Specifically, what happens when lawyers lie in the public square through tweets, speeches, and remarks to discredit valid election results? Do the ethical obligations and duties that apply inside the courtroom also extend to comments lawyers make in the public square? Should they? The jumping off point for this discussion is Professor Renee Kanaki Jefferson's piece in the Yale Law Journal Forum, entitled Lawyer Lies and Political Speech in which Professor Jefferson argues that when a lawyer lies in the public square in order to sabotage valid election results, their words are not protected political speech under the First Amendment. In turn, she argues that when lawyer lies threaten our democracy, the duty of candor, or the ethical obligation to tell the truth in court, should extend to lawyer comments made in the public square. Nathan and I spoke to Professor Jefferson to discuss her piece, and we also got to speak to David Fink, an attorney who represented the city of Detroit in the 2020 election litigation, to discuss the real-world implications of lawyer lies during that election and how to prevent this type of conduct in the future. Professor Renee Kanaki Jefferson holds the Doherty Chair in Legal Ethics at the University of Houston Law Center, where she teaches courses on constitutional law, professional responsibility, and on gender, leadership, and power. She is an internationally recognized expert on professional responsibility and legal ethics and has written multiple award-winning casebooks on ethics and leadership in the legal profession. Her work focuses on the regulation of legal services, access to justice reforms, and the tension between the rules of professional conduct and the values of free speech and competition. Professor Jefferson is with us today to discuss her recently published piece in the Yale Law Journal's forum collection on legal ethics in today's political climate. Professor Jefferson's piece is called Lawyer Lies and Political Speech, and we are delighted to have her with us today. Thank you for joining us, Professor Jefferson. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here with you. Thanks so much, Professor Jefferson. Um, so your recent piece um, explores lawyer lies in modern politics in light of lawyers' ethical responsibilities as guardians of democracy. Um, your focus is on misinformation spread uh, by attorneys supporting former President Donald Trump in the wake of the 2020 election. These attorneys, including Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, um, filed an array of lawsuits making baseless claims of election fraud in an attempt to undermine public confidence in the electoral process. And after these lawsuits were dismissed, many jurisdictions have sought to punish this behavior by seeking sanctions from courts or disciplinary measures such as disbarment from state bar committees. So we were wondering, what inspired you to focus on this topic in the wake of the 2020 election? I was inspired for a few reasons. The first one, most obviously, I mean, this is in the headlines. You can't ignore it. Often, 
the, the topics I study and research related to legal ethics aren't on the front page of the paper. But uh, when it comes to the way lawyers were handling these election cases, uh, they continue to be in the headlines. And so I think I was initially inspired because I felt like it had to be addressed, something I needed to take on. And, and related to that, I think there's a really interesting tension that this topic reveals in that there are times where ethics rules actually permit lawyers to engage in deception and even lie. In fact, one might argue that to provide competent representation, a lawyer sometimes has to lie and is allowed to do so under ethics rules. For example, in the context of negotiations or in certain kinds of investigations, deception actually leads to justice. But here we have an example of lawyer lies on the opposite end of that spectrum where they were compromising justice. And I, I think the last reason why I was really inspired to drill down on this topic is to think about not just what happens when lawyers lie in the courtroom. The ethics rules are clear. And in fact, we saw more than 60 cases dismissed in uh, alleging election fraud when it was based on lies. And, and now we are also seeing there has been a judge in Michigan and also a judge in Colorado who levied sanctions, fees, and, and mandating continuing legal education in one instance for lawyers who were making these lies in court. But I also, in this piece, ask if we shouldn't also be considering what happens when lawyers not just lie in the courthouse, but also in the court of public opinion. Wonderful. Um, just sort of building on that, um, uh, you make a number of sort of prescriptive recommendations within the piece. Um, for the, our listeners who haven't yet had the chance to, to uh, read your piece, would you mind just summarizing uh, some of those main uh, arguments and recommendations that you make? So, of course, my recommendations would in, include, and, and I cite the examples of judges both, again, in, in Colorado and Michigan, who required lawyers to pay the attorney's fees for the other side in these cases, who, in, you know, in one instance have ordered those lawyers to engage in continuing legal education. But I would propose taking it another step further. In addition to being sanctioned by the judge who's presiding over the case, lawyers can also be disciplined by any disciplinary authority, a state bar association, for example, where they are licensed. And that can be, um, you know, some lawyers may be licensed in one state arguing a case in another. That's certainly what, what has happened here. And we have yet to see any state bar authority come out with specific discipline. Now, that discipline can be far more than just saying, you know, attorney's fees in a case or take continuing legal education. It can range as a, a whole range of disciplinary tools. It can be as minimal as a, a private reprimand, and it can go so far as to stripping someone of their license to practice for a period of time or even permanent disbarment. I believe these disciplinary bodies need to be taking action. And then the last reform I propose in this essay is for the legal profession itself to take a look at the way we regulate lawyers. So there are currently rules on the books in every state. They're based on model rules that are promulgated by the American Bar Association. And those rules say that when a lawyer appears in court in, before a tribunal in front of a judge, that the lawyer is obligated to make no false statement of law or fact. 
The rules also say when speaking to a third party, those ABA model rules say that a lawyer cannot make a material statement of law or fact. But beyond that, those model rules and, and no jurisdiction has a specific guide in place for what a lawyer can say outside of the courtroom with the exception of pretrial publicity. And that doesn't really get to the kinds of lies that were told here in the campaign rallies and media and in the public square. And so I am arguing ultimately in my essay for extending that duty of candor in a very limited way to also cover the very situation that we witnessed in the outcome of the 2020 election. And while that's the example that certainly inspired this piece, I believe that uh, this is something that if we don't take it on as a legal profession is um, perhaps not going to go away. And so we should try to, as best we can, get out ahead of it. Absolutely. Um, just as a brief follow-up to that, um, the updates that you propose, I'm, I'm curious to the degree to which you think they um, have become more salient or are prompted by uh, changes in the broader um, information climate in which we live now. Um, changes in social media, changes in the way that information is conveyed from um, members of the bar to the public um, and the sort of broader, um, the widening of, of potential fora in which uh, lawyers can, can access uh, public spaces of discourse. That's such an interesting question. And I, I think the answer has to be, yes, there is a change. I mean, both in in terms of how quickly information is disseminated and how quickly misinformation or not just misinformation, but outright wrong and deliberately wrong information is disseminated. And it can be very difficult to know what are the actual facts, which is why we now see the legal profession and our courts rising to an even more important role in in information giving in a way that I just don't think it certainly wasn't contemplated when the American Bar Association's model rules were promulgated years ago. And I don't know that the rules have kept up completely with the, the pace of how information flows, both in this context and maybe even others as well. And so I, I see it as lawyers have an opportunity to meet a great national need. And it's a uh, it's a need for knowing where can we ultimately go when we are trying to find out what the facts are and where is a place that actually has both the ethical obligations and the procedural rules, even if they are sometimes imperfect. And, and I have written about those imperfections in other areas of my scholarship, because to be sure, there are outcomes of cases that have gone through court under the auspices of ethics and rules that um, ultimately end up overturned or end up turning out wrong. But, but given the world we live in, the courtroom is perhaps the best place where these structures are already there and can be further reformed. Absolutely. So turning now, I guess, to what courts have done in that forum. Um, as you noted, there's only a handful of courts so far who have actually moved forward um, and imposed sanctions on um, attorneys for uh, the, the Trump campaign and former President Donald Trump um, for their role in the post-2020 election cases. Um, 
And more generally, um, another point that you note in your article um, is that uh, empirical studies have found ethics codes tend to be under-enforced um, and serious sanctions aren't usually granted by courts. So I'm curious, why might that be? Why might some judges be reluctant to sanction lawyers for lies um, designed to sabotage valid election results? You raise a really important point, and that's the under-enforcement of ethics rules in general. And let me be very specific here. There are several reasons for under-enforcement. Um, part of it is driven by the fact that each state has its own disciplinary body, and so there's not necessarily a lot of uniformity. It can be driven by resources. Some states have more resources to investigate and to sort through these issues than others. It can be also the reality that lawyers are, it's, it's lawyers policing themselves, right? And so one critique is that lawyers may be less reluctant to enforce or to um, impose a, as harsh of a punishment as they might um, because it is a member of the profession. Now, um, we can talk more about whether or not I think that's a good thing. I actually do think it's an important component of lawyer independence, but but it can lead to that issue of, of under-enforcement. And so I think that's part of, of the tension here. And then the last thing I will say about under-enforcement, and it kind of relates to whether it's a good idea to have lawyers guarding the hen house, so to speak. Um, there is a lack of transparency. So every state handles their lawyer discipline system differently. One thing that is probably true of all of them, even though they are all somewhat different, is that they could all be improved with more transparency. Even for someone like me, a legal ethics scholar who studies this, it takes a lot of work for me and for the wonderful reference librarians that I work with at my university to track down what's happening in a discipline case. It involves phone calls. It's not publicly available. It's difficult to search the records. Often you can't get specific information about an attorney, even if you have their name and you have enough to track it down. But most people may not even know of discipline that's happening. We know about these cases because you, you couldn't ignore them, right? That's what inspired me to write the piece. I couldn't ignore the headlines. But often if a lawyer has engaged in behavior that warrants discipline, the only person that might know is maybe the client, but even clients might not understand that their own lawyer hasn't followed their ethical obligations. And so a, a really important component here to addressing that under-enforcement, and it's a reform I champion, is more transparency. I'm curious, like judges defining the standard for what constitutes frivolous conduct or um, under Rule 11 or, or you know, similar disciplinary mechanisms. Um, how might that have changed following the aftermath of the 2020 election? Do you think judges going forward are generally going to be more attentive to potentially frivolous claims or um, in the wake of everything that's happened, might they even be more desensitized to them? So I don't know if I can predict with certainty here. I would say that judges are going to remain as attentive as they always have been. And I believe that they are attentive. And I think that um, the difference really might be in part that the public will better understand how important it is that we have the independence of our judicial branch. And this, this goes to both 
lawyers and lawyers slash judges, right? Um, guarding and, and uh, creating their own rules and creating their own enforcement mechanisms. And that might seem really counterintuitive. And, and I think it's certainly when I'm teaching professional responsibility and legal ethics, uh, it's something that students question. And when I tell people that's what I teach, I often get the, I don't think it's very funny, but people think it's a very funny joke. That must be a short course. Um, because uh, often there is a lot of public confusion about uh, why it is that lawyers regulate themselves and why it's important. But it is very important for preserving the independence of the judicial branch, the independence of our courts, for separation of powers. It is equally important, though, that that enforcement actually happen in, as I was saying earlier, that more transparent way and in a more transparent way. Um, but I, I don't know that we will see, uh, I, I, I believe, and we are, we're seeing it play out, um, although I was a little bit nervous, right, um, in the aftermath of all of these cases being dismissed, what's going to happen next? But, but in fact, the judges are doing exactly what they should be doing. They're following the procedure. They're following their rules. They're following the process. They're, they're making the case. And the judges who have issued these sanctions have done so uh, not in any, um, any sort of short or, or fast or quick way. They have been very methodical. They have written extremely detailed opinions. And those opinions are not just important for the parties involved. But those opinions are, are important because they are the markers of history for us. So um, law students, lawyers, scholars like me, historians, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years from now are going to look back at this time. It's going to be a time where they're going to try to understand what was happening in this country and, and what did we do in response. And it is the judges who have not only dismissed the cases that were baseless challenges to a valid election, but then also are following through to not just discipline, but also document why in the case of the lawyers involved, that it's a very, very important historical record. Absolutely. To talk a little bit about your recommendations for what will come out of this historical moment, the prescriptive changes that um, you suggest in your article. One particular one that you'd mentioned earlier um, is to create a more expansive understanding of the duty of candor uh, for practicing lawyers and soon-to-be lawyers. In your article, you, you specifically propose extending the duty of candor that is currently in existence for lawyers in the courtroom to all public comments regarding election results, particularly if false statements made by a lawyer in this context are likely to cause severe harm. Just as an initial matter, for those listening who might not be familiar with the term, could you just quickly explain what the duty of candor entails for an attorney? Sure. Yeah. So this is based on those uh, model rules that are promulgated by the American Bar Association. And then each state, and it's um, usually the judges at the highest court of each state, most state that's a, states at the Supreme Court, but some states call their highest court by a different name. Uh, those rules are adopted and actually enforceable then on the state level in that way. But but generally speaking, states follow the ABA's model rules. And the model rules tell us with respect to the duty of candor in the courtroom that a lawyer is prohibited from making any false statement of law or fact to a tribunal. Tribunal means a judge or in, in a courtroom setting, courtroom-like setting. Lawyers are also prohibited from filing um, frivolous claims. And so I'm not saying that lawyers shouldn't be able to speak publicly about elections. They absolutely 
should and, and we need them to. But my proposal would just extend that same duty to the court of public opinion, if you will, or to the public square. So if if a lawyer is making false statements of law or fact that go to the validity of an election and they cannot they would not be allowed to make that statement in the courtroom my proposal would say that they can't make that statement publicly to the media as well and i realize that that is a proposal that would probably get some pushback right uh, um there you know certainly as a as a private citizen to place that kind of restriction on someone under the first amendment that wouldn't fly but lawyers have heightened obligations and in fact there is a fairly ext extensive precedent from the United States Supreme Court prior cases where the court has upheld limitations on lawyer speech and so i i put that proposal out there under the umbrella of this prior precedent no case is precisely on point but but there is a, at least something to be built upon here and the the last thing i would Say about that with respect to the duty of candor. Again, I want to emphasize it's it's not that a lawyer shouldn't and, and can't speak publicly in this way, but when we think about the context of an election, that is a fundamental bedrock aspect of our democracy. And so it might not be appropriate to extend that duty of candor to every topic. But when we're talking about the fundamental essence of upholding how our democratic government runs. I think it's at least appropriate for us to be having the conversation about whether or not we want to extend the duty of candor in this way. Where do you draw the line between what a lawyer can do in their private capacity as someone passionate about our democracy and reforms for our democracy and speech that could perhaps influence an election in some way? And my, my, my concern or fear is that much of all speech related to elections nowadays can be construed as influencing the election in some way. So where would you draw that line um, with your proposal? So I think the line can be drawn the same place it's drawn in the courthouse. And the real question, I, I think what you're getting to is, but how do you enforce it then? You know, how do you enforce that when you don't have the context of the courtroom and the judge? And, and I hear that. I think it's a valid concern. And do we want our, our courthouses filled with cases being brought about what has been said in the public square? And to that, I, I actually, in the essay, I sort of leave that for another day. But we're in the podcast now. We're not in the essay. So I won't just leave it for another day. I will say a couple of things. So the first one is uh, this certainly wouldn't be the first time where an ethics rule was put on the books that uh, was difficult to enforce. And so I actually think that there is some value in, um, even if it's an aspirational rule ultimately, um, because again, I, I believe that having an aspirational rule has some value. If, if for nothing else, it's a signaling mechanism, it maybe is an internal cross check and it does say to the public that we as lawyers are thinking about this, we care about this, and we believe that this is something that we should strive for in our ethical obligations. But I also think that it's entirely possible that it, it, it could be enforced. So I definitely see both sides, you know, and, and I think that you have hit a really important and nuanced point in your question. But I don't think that's a reason for us not 
to have this conversation. I don't think this, that's a reason for us not to consider if there isn't room in the rule of rules of ethics that already prohibit the lawyers from making these kinds of statements in the courtroom, already prohibit lawyers from making material misstatements to third parties, already prohibit certain kinds of statements that lawyers can make in the pretrial context that might prejudice a case if there isn't also room to consider the kind of obligations that we are talking about here. Thanks so much. I had another follow-up question related to implementation of, of uh, extending the duty of candor. I mean, so as you've noted, um, different jurisdictions approach ethics differently, and yet elections are a national issue. So in terms of pushing for this kind of sea change in you know, how the legal profession writ large conducts itself, what does it look like for one state to apply and expand a duty of candor differently than another, say, or a different jurisdiction? Would it still be effective at, at curbing the kind of national election fraud that we saw in 2020? Great question. And so it, you know, it's difficult, and it's not just in this context, but in any time there is a reform to the model rules, and that, that's typically where something like this might occur, right? So the American Bar Association can decide, okay, you know, let's say they, they decide yes, but I, I don't think it would happen this easily. Um, but let's say they decide, yes, Professor Jefferson, we, we love your reform. Uh, thank you, Yale Law Journal formal Forum for, for proposing it to us. We're going we're gonna to do this mean anything until a particular state then goes and adopts it and puts it on their own books. And often states will just adopt what the ABA has proposed, but sometimes they make things quite different and nuanced and unique state by state. And your point's well taken. Elections are national, but elections are also local. And having this obligation, even in one state, could have a powerful signal signaling effect for how lawyers should be thinking about their statements and the like in the future. Another piece to the in, in enforcement, I, I think, can I ask my own question here? Uh, would be, uh, well, how do you know when a lawyer is acting as a lawyer? Uh, because, you know, sometimes lawyers are acting as lawyers in their public advocacy, and sometimes they're speaking as private citizens. And that's a, a fair question as well. For me, I would say, and this is perhaps the glass half full or the naive or the Pollyanna side of me. I'm like, is it is it so much to ask all of our lawyers to check themselves so that they aren't making, you know, knowing false statements of law or fact publicly? And and um, so I, I would I would say it should apply to anyone who is a lawyer, whether they're acting as a lawyer or not. And and on that, I would just say that. That's not such a crazy proposal on my part, because when we have seen discipline for lawyers who have lied, they are lawyers who have lied not while they were practicing law in the political sphere, the perhaps most famous. And this happens to both political parties. I know we've been talking about lawyers in the Trump administration a lot, but I want to make it really clear that this is an issue that is not a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. It is a, a, it's a, you know, it's not just an issue for Democrats or Republicans. It is an issue that can happen across the lines. Um, President Clinton gave up his law license in the investigation that was ensuing related to um, discipline that would be warranted after he committed perjury in the Paula Jones litigation. And President Nixon, um, he lost his law license in the wake of the Watergate scandal. So 
there uh, on, on that, I think um, a lawyer, whether practicing law at the moment or not, should be held to the obligation of, of evidence-based verifiable facts. Awesome. So turning now to how some of those lawyers have been held accountable. Um, so as you mentioned earlier this year, um, Michigan District Court Judge Linda Parker imposed severe sanctions on nine attorneys who attempted to undermine the 2020 election, um, including Sidney Powell and Wood. The order included attorneys' fees for the defendants on the case, mandatory legal education classes, and then, as you noted, it referred the attorneys for potential further disciplinary action um, by their respective state bar authorities. So, you know, this is one of the highest profile, if not the highest profile, um, post-2020 verdicts on sanctions. And I'm curious as to get your take on it. How might the order serve as a model for other sanctions cases involving election misinformation? Um, are there ways in which you might feel it might have gone too far or with ways in which you um, wish it might have gone further? As a companion set segment um, with this episode, um, we're going to be speaking with one of the lawyers um, who helped uh, the city of Detroit law department argue for sanctions in that case. I'm curious what le what ethical concerns, if any, are raised by that practice when lawyers self-police within the profession. Um, do you think that the benefits uh, outweigh the potential harms? Um, and what are the thoughts that you have? So lawyers are ethically obligated, actually. there's This is also another shocking legal ethics rule when we come to it in my professional responsibility classes. Like in addition to having to make sure that you're meeting all of your own ethical obligations, at least under the ABA model rules and in many states, you have an obligation to report the unethical conduct of a colleague. So even if you are the most ethical lawyer ever, if you fail to report the unethical you know, actions of another lawyer, you could find yourself subject to discipline. That's pretty unusual, but it has happened. And so certainly there's no ethical issue in a, in a lawyer coming along that way and, and reporting or following up on a behavior that is violating ethics rules. Related to that, we touched on it earlier, but I'll just be clear here because I think that this question puts it in a slightly different light. Should we be doing more? Should there be to check the behavior of lawyers than just lawyers policing each other or judges policing other lawyers. I don't really love the word policing for that, but but monitoring the ethical commitments and making sure that they're being met, shall we say. And so on this, I have said it before, but it bears repeating, transparency is key. Transparency can be the real remedy. You know, should we, I'm often asked, well, should we, punish lawyers more harshly, you know, is that the goal of punishment? Should we, should we take away their law licenses permanently? And, and in some instances, that is exactly what is warranted. But at the end of the day, the goal isn't let's punish the lawyers. The goal is let's have a justice system that works. And transparency can be transformative in that way. What would more transparency look like? Easily accessible, free, searchable databases with the appropriate amount of information available so that a client can find out whether or not a lawyer has been disciplined in the past so that the public, even if the public couldn't generally find out the name of every lawyer, could at least learn the kinds of things and importantly, the kinds of behavior that was sanctioned and, and lawyers themselves would benefit from that too, as would maybe even um, judges as well. So sometimes it's uh, difficult if you're not 
in law school or teaching the topic like I am to be thinking about every rule that applies. And so there's a huge educational value in that transparency component too. Wonderful. Um, I'm going to ask one more quick question um, just to close things out. How can we as law students think about promoting this kinds of culture? Um, what kind of changes can we advocate for on our campuses and in our communities going forward as the next members of the legal generation? I really appreciate that you asked that question. And part of it is doing exactly what you're doing right now. So a podcast like this takes words that I wrote on, on a piece of paper. Well, they start on a piece of paper, then they end up in my laptop, right? And going out into the world in an essay. But an essay that maybe not everyone would have picked up and read but perhaps they will now think about these issues because they're hearing about it in this in this context. And so a big thing that law students can be doing is thinking about how to get this topic uh, you know, out, out in conversation. And wherever you fall, whether you agree with me or not, I hope we all can agree that we need to be talking about next for lawyers in the face of seeing such extreme cases of lies that were supporting cases that were completely dismissed and now are sanctioned. And, and it's, it's in a critical conversation to have. So we need podcasts. I don't know what else we need. TikToks. I, we need more of that. We need more of the conversation to bring it beyond just the legal community too, out into the public. And beyond that, I I hope that by fellow members of the legal profession will at least consider whether or not we need to have more guidance in our ethics rules for information that lawyers disseminate. If, if it is not good enough for our courthouse, then why is it good enough for the public out in the public square? And if we can't answer that question, that's, that's where I think we have a huge responsibility to figure out why, if a lawyer cannot say something in, in a courtroom, then why is it appropriate? And when is it appropriate for them to say it elsewhere? Well, Professor Jefferson, we really appreciate you joining us for this conversation in the virtual public square. Um, and I think with that, we'll close it out. So thank you so much again for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you, it was great to be here. And you can read Professor Jefferson's piece in the Yale Law Journal Forum collection on legal ethics in today's political climate. It's called Lawyer Lies and Political Speech. Thanks, Professor. Next, Nathan and I got the opportunity to take Professor Jefferson's arguments off the page and into the real world. We speak to the lawyer who represented the city of Detroit in litigation brought by former President Donald Trump to discredit the results of the 2020 election in Michigan. David H. Fink is the managing partner of the law firm Fink Bresak. He has over 40 years of experience litigating complex, high-stakes civil cases. In 2020, Mr. Fink represented the city of Detroit defending against a suit brought by the Kraken team of lawyers who represented former President Donald Trump in lawsuits seeking to decertify the result of the 2020 presidential election in Michigan. After dismissal of that suit, Mr. Fink successfully argued a motion for sanctions that resulted in one of the highest profile penalties against Trump's lawyers to date, including attorney's fees, mandatory legal education, and referral for potential disbarment. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Fink. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Fink. So just as an initial matter, could you share a little bit about your experience um, in the courtroom dynamics of litigating these kinds of sanctions motions? 
What kind of factors go into a judge's decision about when and how to award sanctions? And what strategies do you use in briefing and arguing for these motions as a litigator? That's a tricky question to ask a lawyer. We have a lot of theories about what judges consider, but we only know our strategy. Generally, most cases, we do not file motions for sanctions. It's not standard by any measure. In most litigation, there are legitimate differences of agreement on both sides. Sometimes there is somebody unreasonable, but as long as the lawyers follow the rules of civil procedure, the rules of civility and basic ethics, we don't seek sanctions and most courts wouldn't grant those sanctions. It's only when attorneys go outside the realm of reasonable practice that we even consider seeking sanctions. And generally speaking, courts don't like to grant sanctions. For the most part, courts leave the parties to follow the rules of civil procedure and the rules of civility and trust that the uh, professionalism of the attorneys will carry the day, even when sometimes things get a little heated. Here, we had a different situation where a few different factors applied. One, of course, you had extraordinarily improper conduct on the part of the plaintiff's attorneys. Two, you had an improper use of the court system because it was very clear that any lawyer would have known they couldn't have won those cases with the facts that they had. So they were doing something else. And what they were doing was trying to deliver a message, and they succeeded in delivering that message, trying to deliver a message to the world that there was some impropriety in a very, very clean election. So one, you have some misconduct, but not just technical misconduct. Two, you have the use of the, of the courts for a different purpose. And three, or an improper purpose, but three, we had a situation where we felt very strongly, not just that these people who did this, these attorneys who did this, should be sanctioned and suffer some consequence for what they did. We wanted to be sure of two other things. One, that the consequence was severe enough to discourage other lawyers from doing the same thing in 2022 and 2024 and every election from now forever. Absolutely. Just as a brief follow-up to that, um, you noted that the conduct associated with this suit was you know, quite remarkable and, and without precedent. Um, I'm wondering how that affected um, your strategy uh, during the initial litigation and then um, the subsequent motion for sanctions. Um, the national stage of this dispute, public scrutiny and media attention associated with the case. How did that cause you to change the way you litigated this versus um, another sanctions motion that you might have made over the course of your 40 year career? As far as how we handled the litigation, the, the unbelievably inappropriate nature of the complaint, the un unbelievably improper allegations that they had to know 
were untrue, put us in a tough position. We had to determine how to respond to that. And we are very consistent in what we do in this or in any other case. Our rule is to handle every case in the most professional and thorough way that we can to not go down to the level of your opponent. It was said when I first started practicing law by one of my very first mentors, he said, if you get in the ring with a bum, you're going to look like a bum. And it is true that when you litigate against somebody that doesn't follow the rules, you have a tendency to do things differently than you normally do. And if you do that, you end up looking bad and you end up sometimes doing things that are wrong. You don't want to, but it just it, 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 the tit for tat can be hard to avoid. I think we did avoid it in this case. We tried very hard to, to stay on the high road. And as far as the media and outside interest in what we were doing, our view was and is that you can't change what you're doing because more people are watching. Or stated another way, every day of our practice, in every case we handle, we act as though we are in public, that we are being seen in the public light. Now, it was a little different in some of the day-to-day -day interactions because we were getting calls from the media and we had to, you always have to make sure that your any kind of uh, media communications are consistent with your client's interest and your client has to make that decision. Some lawyers can become confused to think that the media is about them. It's not about you. It's always about your client. It's always about your case. Now, regarding the sanctions, the interest of the public in what we were doing did play some role in the sanctions, not in our seeking the sanctions, except in a very odd way, because these cases were intended to deliver a message to the public, a false message to the public. So we did think that part of our defense should include the truth. The more they lied, in public, the more we felt we needed to tell the truth in public. And so in that regard, this case played out more publicly. And for the sanctions in particular, we needed, because the purpose of the sanctions was in part to deter future bad conduct by others, we did feel that it was important to be sure that the media understood why we were doing what we were doing and what was important. We did not want this to become the story that it's just the city of Detroit trying to get their money back, because it wasn't that. We're happy to get our money back, that's very important for my client, but it wasn't the most important. And the judge understood that. And she wrote you know, a brilliant opinion. Absolutely. And just going off of that last piece, Judge Parker's order is to date one of the few significant sanctions orders that have been handed down against Trump's legal team. Do you foresee more of these coming in the future? Do you think that this order is going to serve as a model for uh, proceedings in other jurisdictions? Do you think that one high profile national ruling like this is sufficient? Or do you think that more needs to be done in order to achieve those sorts of deterrent effects that you've been talking about? 
there are not a lot more opportunities for sanctions. We had a couple of other cases in which we sought sanctions and the courts, understandably, in the context in which the, the sanctions were requested, which was right in the heat of the litigation. The courts decided not to get involved in that and chose not to uh, not to issue some sanctions that we sought. Almost all of the cases nationally, after their dismissals, the defendants did not seek sanctions, and it isn't something that we can wait and and do afterwards. You you have to do that very promptly. Uh, in most cases, there's exceptions, but in most cases, you have to move very promptly. So, no, I don't expect uh, a lot more. I do, however, expect continuing ramifications from the various pending grievance matters, most of which, by the way, are very confidential. And so we don't even know what the status of those are. But it's our hope and expectation that the various grievance authorities or disciplinary authorities will go forward and ultimately you will hear more about it. But for now, just to be clear, I don't think there's any other case in which those lawyers have been ordered to take continuing legal education on two subjects, by the way, one election law, which they clearly didn't know, and two, the proper rules of pleading, which is uh, pretty unusual, but appropriate here, but it was an unusual decision and a very good decision judge made. and. I don't know how many other grievance references, referrals there have been. I'm not sure that there have been others. So this is unusual, and I don't know of another case that's likely to advance to this point. I hope there is, but I don't think there is. Can I just ask a very brief follow-up question as to why you think that might have been? Why were other attorneys um, handling similar matters? Why might they have been reluctant to seek sanctions? Generally, lawyers are not comfortable seeking sanctions against their colleagues. There's nothing wrong with that. It's part of professional interaction is the likelihood that you're going to disagree with the professionals on the other side. And not every case deserves sanctions, even when an attorney has done something a little bit a little bit over the top, a little bit wrong, uh, a little bit exaggerated. Maybe they believed a client they shouldn't have believed. But it doesn't mean that the individual is necessarily culpable. And even if they are a little bit, we all have to get along because we're going to be back in court together again, maybe not with that same person, maybe with somebody else in that firm. And generally speaking, we don't seek sanctions. In this case, though, you had multiple factors that militated in favor of seeking those sanctions. One is, of course, the most important is that this was a case in which the court's processes were being abused by lawyers who were misrepresenting facts in court, misrepresenting the law in court, and making it very public while they were doing it, and doing it to achieve the most extraordinary remedy. The court referred to 
the relief saw it as being breathtaking in its scope. And it was. They were literally asking this court to silence the voice of 5 million voters. They literally were asking the court to overturn the democratic process and to do so with nothing but nonsense. Honestly, I don't think I've ever been involved in any case where the stakes were as high as they were here and where the practice was as low as it was here. So it cried out for sanctions. The Yale Law Journal recently published a piece by uh, Professor Rene Kanaki Jefferson called Lawyer Lies in Political Speech. And one of the most significant systemic changes that Professor Jefferson proposes is to extend the duty of candor um, that lawyers are currently held to in courtroom proceedings outside of the courtroom to encompass all public comments regarding election results, particularly if they're likely to cause severe harm. So we were curious, as a practitioner, what are your reactions to that proposal? Do you think that this would be effective at preventing the kind of ethical abuses that were perpetuated uh, in the wake of the 2020 election? I haven't seen the proposal in or looked at it in any detail. I just hear what you're telling me right now. I mean, it raises immediately some concerns about the First Amendment. There, there has to be a significant difference between what a lawyer can say in a courtroom and what a lawyer can say when they're not in a courtroom. When you walk into the courtroom, you do give up some of your First Amendment rights. And the corollary of that is, as an attorney, you should have the same First Amendment rights that other people have when you're not in a courtroom. So I'm not ready to say that an attorney should ever be sanctioned for saying just for saying something outside of a courtroom that isn't true. I think that would be a very dangerous and difficult thing to implement. Now, that said, do I think that a lawyer has responsibility for what that lawyer says about his or her pending litigation? Absolutely. I think that when you're in a case, when you're pursuing a case, that the public statements that you make about that case can be and should be considered by the court when the court is considering sanctions and to be clear in this case, we didn't need a new rule. We did tell the court about some of the awful things that were said by these lawyers, and some of the awful things that were done by these lawyers outside of the courtroom. And there's no question that the court did consider those as an indication of what was being intended and also, the court considered that in the context of what were the what were the consequences of their behavior, because in this case, the behavior played out in this public forum and had public impact. I want to sort of follow up on the sort of First Amendment concerns as well as the professional concerns raised by um, you know a proposal like Professor Jefferson's regulating lawyer speech and conduct beyond just before a tribunal. As a practitioner, you're all aware of this. Lawyers are frequently required to make statements that aren't strictly true in order to act in their client's best interests. At the same time, there's this very interesting tension with a matter like this, where uh, lawyer speech is used to, to undermine the democratic process. So I'm curious if you see any way to draw that sort of line, either from a professional or a First Amendment perspective. Well, I, I have to say I have a, a serious problem with your premise. I don't believe that lawyers are required to say things that aren't true. I don't think 
that it's part of being a lawyer that you ever tell a lie. I don't believe that. I think that's something that's commonly thought. I think a lot of people who aren't lawyers think that's true. And unfortunately, some lawyers might think it's true. But I can't think of any circumstance in which, as an attorney, I have ever thought it was appropriate to lie. When I was in school, they had just started professional responsibility classes. Not that they started professional responsibility, but that was the beginning of the classes. And I remember we spent a tremendous amount of time on the question, you have a client who tells you that he wants to lie on the stand, what are you supposed to do? And there's all kinds of different answers. In the end, the actual ethical answer is, you're supposed to put that client on the stand if they demand being on the stand and just say, tell us your story and stop. You don't lead them with questions. You don't ask them questions. You just let them tell their story because that's the story they want to tell. But if you actually know they're going to lie, if you know for a fact what they're saying is a lie, as far as I'm concerned, you don't even put them on the stand. You have to withdraw. And many lawyers do. And it is not as unusual as you might think for a lawyer to withdraw from representation because their client is asking them to advance things that aren't true. This is not a game. This is real life. And in real life, you don't lie. That's simple. Absolutely. One other thing that came up in the course of our conversation with her was um, this interesting space that exists for lawyers specifically who occupy spaces other than um, the practice of law. Lawyers who um, have public roles as politicians outside of their profession in the legal world. And just to briefly follow up on this line of questioning, do you see a way to draw that line as to when a lawyer is speaking in their uh, lawyerly capacity versus in their public capacity? Is it separable at all? And to what extent um, are statements made in one or when the lawyer is wearing one or the other hat still relevant before a court? It is a rare circumstance that there's any interplay between what, what an attorney says outside of the courtroom and what they say inside of the courtroom. Generally speaking, the fact that an attorney is expressing an extreme opinion on a subject really has no bearing on what they do in the courtroom. The judge just looks at what's presented to him or her in the courtroom. The judge just looks at the pleadings and the arguments, the motions, the testimony, the documents in that case. It's unusual for the court to go outside of that. And in this instance, where there were games being played and where they were using the courtroom as a public relations tool. As one lawyer said, this lawsuit was not a lawsuit, it was a press release with a filing fee. And while that's a, a good soundbite, it it understates the harm that could be caused, but it does give some message of what they were trying to do. So it, I wouldn't turn the practice of law on its head and put the First Amendment in jeopardy by trying to create general administrative rules to address a very specific and unique problem. This was unprecedented. 
really unprecedented. I was involved in the 2000 recount and uh, I was down in Broward County in Florida counting ballots, you know, working at the canvassing board with the hanging chads. I don't know if you guys are. It was uh, it was it was obviously um, you were very young, but the litigation then was straightforward. Now, I disagreed with what the Republicans were doing, and I disagreed with the relief that they sought. I disagreed with the things that they said and did. But their out-of-court statements did not drive what happened in the court at all. And nobody was using those, those cases for any purpose other than what they went in for. They went to get a stay. They went to get an injunction to stop the recount. We filed suits to do other things. But everything was always what the courts were for. What happened in this case was the courts in 60 lawsuits the process was being abused. And when you look at abuse of process, abuse of process doesn't mean you are wrong in seeking the relief you seek. It means you're, you're using the process in a manner in which it wasn't, for which it was not intended. That's abusing process is when you use it for a purpose other than that it was, it was intended for. And clearly, they abused process here. They did because they were uh, filing cases, not because they could win. They were filing cases to send messages. And out-of-court statements became relevant here because they importantly colored what was happening. I'm going to give you a very important example for what was important to us. The plaintiffs decided when we had a motion to dismiss and it was fully briefed. They waited till the very last second before it could be argued. And they said, we voluntarily dismiss our case. Okay. Now there's a couple of issues there. The first issue was they don't get to do that. That we, we are able to, to keep the case alive for, for our purposes. But more importantly, when they did that, they had an appeal pending in the sixth circuit and a petition for writ of cert pending in the United States Supreme Court. When they contacted us and said, well, will you agree to dismiss? We said, are you dismissing your appeal? And local counsel said, yes. So the next day we said, we haven't seen the dismissal yet. And local counsel said, Sidney Powell is preparing it. But we still didn't see it. And we told the courts, we told the courts, they said they're going to dismiss. We haven't seen a dismissal. Then, over a week later, Sidney Powell made a public statement. I think she did it. It might have been a tweet. She may have been barred from Twitter by then. I don't remember. I, I just don't know. But it was in some kind of social media. She made a statement that don't believe people when they say the case is over. The Supreme Court hasn't ruled yet, and it's scheduled for hearing. So. That out-of-court statement was relevant when we came back to Judge Parker and said they didn't dismiss the case. They told you they dismissed the case and they shouldn't be responsible for anything that happened after that date of dismissal, but they were trying to take advantage of the case. And the proof we had wasn't that they had a pending case, or they did, that the, that the writ hadn't been dismissed. 
But any kind of argument can be made that maybe they didn't have to dismiss the writ, but that she made a public statement that the case was still alive. Now, that wasn't a public statement about the facts in her case. That wasn't a public statement about the law in her case. That was a public statement about the procedural posture of the case. And clearly, that's something you should be able to talk about. But if Sidney Powell went on a talk show at the same time, went on a talk show and said, I just don't believe these Democrats. They're all liars. They stink. I don't think that's something that I have any right to go into court and say, I don't like what Sidney Powell is saying. I'm not a liar. And she said I was a liar. I, I don't think that's something that is any of my business. Once they talk about the case, once they make reference to the case, it's very pertinent. And any misrepresentation about the case absolutely should be subject to sanctions and considered by a court. As a final question, we know that many of the lawyers representing the Trump campaign were barred outside of the state of Michigan. That is, they were either barred in the District of Columbia or somewhere else. Was that fact relevant to the severity of Judge Parker's final sanctions order? I have to candidly say that was a very significant factor. Now, it cut a couple of different ways. One was that local counsel abused the privilege of being local counsel because local counsel signed pleadings they hadn't read and made representations they knew nothing about. And local counsel shouldn't have done that. So that's why local counsel was an appropriate target for the sanctions. But the out-of-state counsel was a truly shocking abuse of the privilege of practicing law. These folks filed expert affidavits that talked about how many people in Michigan were registered Democrats. We don't have party registration. They filed actual expert reports that talked about the Secretary of State sending out ballots. Our Secretary of State can't send out ballots. They can only be sent out by local election authorities. They talked about the impossibility that 300,000, roughly 340,000 people voted absentee on the same day they completed the ballot because the mail couldn't go that fast. It had to be received and sent out. There had to be at least two or three days between those dates because they didn't know that in Michigan, it is absolutely common to walk in to a clerk's office, to fill out a ballot application, to receive the ballot, to fill out the ballot, to hand the ballot back, I've been voting that way for 30 years every time I vote. And out-of-state lawyers have a responsibility, just as in-state lawyers, but out-of-state lawyers have, I think, a greater responsibility to know what the law is. Like, you don't come in and pretend you know the law or pretend you know the procedures. They had no idea how votes, voting was handled. And this nonsense about them saying and continuing to say till today that this election was stolen when they don't know how elections are conducted it's just outrageous. I think that's a fantastic place to close it out. Mr. Mm -hmm. Fink, thank Thanks you so much for, for joining us this morning. Um, we really appreciate it. Okay, good talking to you. Don't believe it when people say lawyers are mostly unethical. Lawyers are mostly very ethical. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. 
Thank you to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful people at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.